0: to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you, and enjoy. All right, you're going to need your Bible today. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a hardback black one in the pew rack in front of you, and uh, it'll also be on the screen, but I always want to encourage you, bring your Bible, the one that you have at home, the one that you read every day. Uh, Open your Bible. Get in that word. Be familiar with that word. Now, you can see on the screen that we're talking about this topic of unity. Um, So, first and foremost, I think I need to ask some of you for forgiveness for roping off your sections. Okay, some of you, you've been you've been holding a grudge against me ever since you walked in because of that. No, I'm just kidding, but kinda, right? We. Two things Baptists don't like. Have you ever heard this one? Two things Baptists don't like. It's change and the same old thing, right? So today, we changed it up for you. And there was a purpose behind that. Um, The purpose behind that is the same thing that Christopher said uh, from the platform just a few minutes ago. Is that there's something about being together in unity. And being together in unity doesn't mean, mean proximity Because you can be close to someone and bear a grudge against them, but what we feel here in this big old space that we have, oftentimes we're so spread out that we can't hear people singing around you. Could you hear people singing around you a little differently today? Some of you, you've never sat in the spot that you're in. Welcome to a new area of life, right? One person said, I see the screen better. And I'm like, well, how about it? You know, that's great. And I just need you to know, from a sound perspective, the worst place in the entire sanctuary to sit is under the balcony. So you might have even heard better today, and we hope that you did. But there's a, there's a purpose. There's a method to our social experiment. And the point is that we want to be a unified body of Christ, and that takes work, and that takes all of us to do something different different and difficult at times and so I want to talk about the topic of unity today how did we get here Ryan I thought we were in the book of Exodus well last Sunday night um, I was asked to share a devotion at Utica Baptist Church as a part of our joint services where we got together and we sang and gosh if you missed it can I just tell you you missed out on a blessing the choir I don't know how many people were up there but it was packed out they sang with one unified voice. They led us in that song, Endless Praise, that we just sang a couple minutes ago, that our choir introduced to you today. Man, they did a fantastic job. And the, the unity of the choir, their voices, was just electric last week. And so as I was preparing for that, I didn't know what I was going to say. I sat down. I, all I knew was I had about five minutes. And if you know me, that's not easy. I'd rather preach an hour than five minutes. But I just sat down with the Lord and said, okay, God, what do you want me to say in this moment? And in literally less than one minute, I felt like God gave me a scripture, and God began to lay out some points in that scripture for that night. And as I stood to preach that message, all I could think of is, wow, how our church needs this. I got to do a, uh, an opening for a board of directors this week, and I did a, a prayer and a devotion. I shared this devotion, and gosh, it was just imprinted on me. That was Monday. I shared that devotion. It was just imprinted on my heart. Man, how we need this at Seneca Baptist. So through the week, I've just been praying. Even cr- Tuesday, Wednesday, Christopher, I'm not sure if this is what God wants me to say Sunday morning. And as the week progressed, I just felt more and more certain that this is exactly what God wanted me to say. So, I want to talk about unity for a few minutes. Unity. Okay? So out of this text, John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23, I want you to see a handful of things about unity. Number one I want you to see is unity is a gift of God. Unity is a gift of God. Now, here's why I say that, and here's why I want you to see that. Because in this passage, Jesus is praying this most famous high priestly prayer. Now, for most of us, it's his second most famous prayer. The first one being the Lord's Prayer, right? That's the most famous that we could all quote. But this is the longest prayer that we have recorded of Jesus. And he is standing around with his disciples. This is after the Lord's Supper. This is after the Passover. This is on his way to the cross. This is in between those time periods. This is often called the Olivet Discourse, one of his most famous times of teaching. Jesus is soon to leave the earth and Jesus, more than anybody, knows it. And here's what Jesus prays for you for. Now he could have prayed a lot of things. Jesus, I, or God, I pray that you'd keep them safe. God, I pray that you'd take care of them. God, I would pray that that you would make them a very successful church in the days ahead. God, I pray... He could have prayed a number of things, but A lot of what Jesus prayed for and spent his time praying in John chapter 17 was not power, was not protection, was not provision or any of those things, but what he said is, God, make them one. Now, I find that to be a very interesting thing, that of all the things God could have prayed for, he chose to pray for this one. Make them one. Make them one. Now, I want you to read it with me. Verses 20 to 23, it says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's the church. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them, That they may be one, even as we are one. I want you to understand that God, Jesus, God in the flesh, prayed for unity. And he prayed that God the Father would grant these and those who would believe in Jesus through their words, grant them unity. Now, what we see in the scripture is that, that this is accomplished by Jesus on the cross. We'll come to that in a minute. Accomplished by Jesus on the cross, and it is applied to us day by day by the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what we need to understand that we are all unified first in sin, we are unified in sin. The Bible is very clear, whether it be uh, John, uh, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, that says, The heart is desperately sick and wicked, no one can understand it, or Psalm 14 says, No one is good, no not one, there's none righteous, no one seeks after God, or whether that's Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All means all. We are unified in our sin. Now, you might look at me and you might say, Pastor, my sin's different than their sin. Their sins are real bad. My sins are just little sins, but their sins, are they really stand out. Now, oftentimes we think about this levels of sin. We look at their sin and their sin's really grievous. Well, my sin's not so bad. That's why we've termed stuff like, well, it was just a little white lie, right? We don't call them sins, what do we call them? We call them mistakes, and we try to justify them and minimize them, and we try to sometimes blame them. Well, if he wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have said that, right? But the Bible is very clear that all of our sin, all of our sin, whether it's great or small, is a capital offense against a holy God. See, I want to show you a slide. On, on the screen, there's a slide of how we see our sin versus how God sees our sin. Okay? We see our sin from a side view. You see it up there? We see it from a side view. Well, the blue is not as tall as the green, and the yellow is really good. They're doing great, and then the red. But how does God see it? God sees sin as sin. Now, we know in Scripture that there are sins with greater consequence. But all of our sin, no matter how small, is rebellion against the only sovereign God the creator of all things. We are all unified in sin, but praise God that the cross is the equalizer of all mankind. Do you know that we're all unified at the foot of the cross? At the foot of the cross, there's no one who stands higher than the other or lower than the other. There at the foot of the cross, there are only the saved and the unsaved. And if you today have Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, if you have entrusted yourself into His mercy, if you have given yourself over to what He has accomplished for you, you and I have been made one in Christ. I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14-15. through 15. It says, For He Himself, that is Jesus, is our peace. Billy Graham was famous for talking about peace with God, wasn't he? This is one aspect of that, that we, you and I, have been reconciled through Jesus' blood by his death, burial, and resurrection. We have been reconciled to God and we have peace with him. Isn't that good news? We're no longer at enemy, in enmity with him. But it also is talking about these horizontal relationships. That in Christ, we are before Christ, we are all sin, sinners and dead in our sin, and In Christ, we are all made alive in Christ and we are all one in Christ. Why? For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself One new man in the place of two, so making peace. There are two levels of peace in that passage. Peace with God and peace with our fellow brothers. We are made one together, brothers and sisters. Jesus accomplishes unity in his body. He accomplishes it and the Spirit applies it. It is a gift of God. The second thing that I want you to see is it is a reflection of the Godhead. It's a reflection of the Godhead. Now, here's what I want. I want you to go back to John 17. Look at verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Do you see that? The, the goal is this unity in the body is a reflection of the unity in the Godhead. And then it goes on to say, Verse 22, the glory that you've given me I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Did you see that? It's the unity that God gives as a gift in the body of Christ through the death of Jesus' His Son is a reflection of the unity in the Godhead. Now, how do I know this? I want you to, in your brains or in your Bibles, flip all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and we'll just look at the first part. The first part of Genesis 1, 26 says... Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay, theologians out there, think about this. This is is one of those verses we don't think about too often. But if God said, let us, who in the world is the us or our? Does God have multiple personalities? Of course not. So what in the world is this scripture speaking to? Come on now, church. The Trinity. The Trinity. The idea that there is three in one. Three in one. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We were created in the image not of just the Father, not of just the Son, not of just the Holy Spirit, but we were made in the image of the Trinity. We were made to reflect the fellowship of, that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share God the unity that God, the Son, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share, and this is an incredible thought. And this unity in the Godhead stems from three things: humility in the Godhead, interdependence in the Godhead, and mutual submission in the Godhead. What do you mean? What What do you mean? What I mean is this. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. The Spirit glorifies the Son and the Father. The Father bears witness to Jesus. Jesus manifests the Father before mankind. And the Spirit points people to Jesus. And we see Jesus submit Himself to the Father's will. There is this submission inside, mutual submission inside the Trinity. There is this humility inside the Trinity, and there is this interdependence inside the Trinity that each one has a role in our salvation and our life. That God planned it, the Jesus accomplished it, and the Spirit applies it to our life. Are you with me, church family? And we we as the church were meant to do the same thing to live out of this humility we see in the Godhead. Specifically, we see it in Jesus, who, although He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But He did what? He humbled Himself. We are meant to have interdependent relationships. I don't know if you know this about our church family, but none of us can do this church thing alone. We need one another. We can't do it without each other. All of us fit inside the body and each of us have a part inside God's body and we fill our role in that body and each one of us are interdependent on one another. The I can't say of the mouth, I have no need of him. Right? Paul talks about this at length in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And mutual submission, we are meant to mutually submit to one another as we submit to Christ. I heard a quote this week. It was, if there's, it's Joe Hellerman. I think it'll be on the screen. If there was one place in the ancient world where a person could expect to encounter a united front, it was in the descent group family of blood brothers and sisters. Okay, now, your family and my family might not look like that all the time. But for Paul. The church is a family, and as such, unity must prevail. Why? Because it is a gift of God, and it is a reflection of the Godhead. We were created in their image. Third, unity is about mission. Unity is about mission. I want you to look back in John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word. Verse 21, That they may all be one, just as You, Father, in Me, and I in You. Listen, look at it. That they also may be in Us, so that the world may believe that You sent Me. The unity that God gives us as a gift The unity that is a reflection of the Godhead. What Jesus spent this time praying for is a unity so that we might be about mission. Is a unity so that we might be about mission. Now look at verse 23. Verse 23 says, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Do you see it two times in this short passage that unity, the gift of God, it's a reflection of the Godhead and it's about the mission of God. Do you see it? Church family, are you awake out there? Are you alive? You you hearing the Word of God? So why do people need to see our church unified? Why do, the, why do people outside the church need to see our church working together? Because the mission of God is to reach the lost is undergirded when we're one, and it's destroyed when we're divided. It's undergirded. It's, 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 it's buttressed. That's the best word I got right now. It is undergirded and strengthened and supported when we are united, and it is chipped away at as we divide. What always suffers? What always suffers when a church begins To face disunity. When a church begins to face disunity for any reason, eyes turn from the world, from the lost, from the mission, inward. Don't they? Our hearts turn inward. We begin to look at each other, fight with one another, And we forsake the mission that we are to be about. There have been a couple times in my ministry at church that my mouth worked faster than my brain. Have you ever been there? Just me, huh? Thank you. I remember one time... Somebody came to me and was just kind of giving me a laundry list of things that they were unhappy about. And I said, you know, what if we use the same amount of effort and energy that we're expending in all of this on evangelism? What difference would that make in the kingdom? See, the mission of God always suffers in the face of disunity. Disunity. Satan Satan does not fear a big church but he fears a united one. Now you might wonder is Ryan talking about us and I say yes. Is Ryan talking about somebody else? I say yes. You look across denominations. You look across Christendom And we have found lots of things to divide over. What suffers the mission that Jesus left us for? How much time we spend on other things. Fourth thing I want you to see so remember, it's a gift of God, it's a reflection of the Godhead, it's about mission, and it's attacked by the enemy of God. Satan loves to divide. Have you ever noticed that? In the the beginning, Adam and Eve, they took and ate of the tree, right? And what was the first consequence after this consequence with God? What was the first earthly consequence between mankind that was experienced? Adam, did you guys eat off of that tree? God, it was her fault. You gave her to me, so really it's y'all's fault. Eve said, it wasn't me. It was the serpent, right? The first thing that Satan attacked was the marriage, which was to be a reflection of a unified Godhead. Are you with me? It's the first thing he attacked. And if you just read the book of Genesis, you don't have to read very far to go, man, this is getting scary real fast. Because in Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills Abel. And by Genesis chapter 6, God says, Enough is enough. Judgment is coming. I'm going to start over. I am, I am I'm grieved that I made these people. It doesn't take long. Then there's a new start. Genesis chapter 9. Noah gets off the boat. How long does that last? Not very. Because by Genesis chapter 11... There is the Tower of Babel. They're scattered. And on and on the disunity goes. Well, well, Ryan, yes, that's the Old Testament, but there should not be disunity in God's church. Have you ever read your Bible? Have you ever read the New Testament? I mean, just think about it. Jesus had 12 of them, right? 12 people. Was there unity always in the disciples? Jesus, who's the greatest? I think I'm the greatest. I mean, you got John and James going around, all the other disciples to go to Jesus and ask for the places of honor at his right hand in the kingdom when it comes. And then all of them are grumbling, right? Guys, it's not supposed to be this way among you. All right, so can we just take heart for a second? We need to take heart. Liz and I, we're not perfect, but we're close, okay? But this will be a surprise to you, but there was this one time that we fought. Just, just once today. And, and for a while, I always, when I first got married, I felt guilty that we fought. Now, I'll just be honest, when we were young and married... Not only did we fight, but we did not fight fair. We needed a referee to say no punching below the belt, you know, those kinds of things. Because we didn't know how to fight. But now we are learning present tense how to fight well. The problem's not in your marriage that if you fight, it's how you fight when you fight. The problem is not if you have disunity inside a church of people. But rather, what do you do when you have disunity in a church of people? But Ryan, we shouldn't have disunity. All right. I got three chillens, okay? And when we get in the car and we decide that we're going to go to eat somewhere, and we turn around, or Liz and I are talking in the front seat because we don't have one of those sound barriers behind us. We wish we did sometimes. But we're talking in the front seat, and Miles has radar sonar ears, and he's listening. And and Miles goes, wait, wait, where are we going to eat? I want to go to." And then the one next to him says, no, I want to go here. And then the one over on the other corner says, no, I want to go there. Number one, I don't remember asking anybody. And number two, there are five of us in a family, and we can't agree on a place to eat, for goodness sakes. How much more... When you add a bunch of people who aren't blood who've come from a lot of different backgrounds is there going to be disunity it's not that there's going to be disunity i mean just read the bible acts chapter 6 the deacons were instituted in the life of the church for the sole sake of unity being preserved Uh, uh, acts chapter 15 there was the jerusalem council why because there was disunity over theology In Corinth, there is a mess of stuff in Corinth, but I'll just pick on one of them. I follow Paul. No, I follow Apollos. And Paul says, who are we that you'd follow us? You should follow Jesus, right? There was disunity in Galatians. There's this group called the Judaizers, and they are are causing disunity and disruption, and Paul deals with it. In Ephesians, the book of Ephesians is all about unity, the book of Philippians, there's these, these two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, and they're disagreeing. He says, for goodness sakes, if there's any hope, if there's any love in Christ, if there's any encouragement, be one, right? In Colossians, Paul writes to the church in Colossae, and he brings out two people, a man named Philemon and a man named Onesimus. Philemon is a master, and Onesimus is slave. He says, Philemon, I know there's disunity, but welcome him back, not as your slave, but as your brother. And on and on. Satan has always attacked the church. He has always gone after the unity of the church. And here are some ways that he still does it today. Number one is is sometimes he uses theology to divide Satan causes people to wander away from the truth. And now, we've been talking on Wednesday nights, preaching out of 1 Timothy. And there in 1 Timothy, we learn that Paul says, fight the good fight of the faith. There is a time to fight over theology. That's a a proper fight to enter. Biblical theology, sound doctrines, a worthy hill to die on. Because sound doctrine unites God's church, but also people argue over other kinds of theology that we can't know about in this world. We argue about all kinds of stuff. Are you this, this group or that group? Are you this ist? or are you that ist? Right? Who? Neither. Right? So the end times, gosh, people fight over the end times. How are you going to know the end times until the end times? Is Jesus coming back? Yes, that's all I know. We sometimes in the church we argue over methodology. Do you know that the scriptures rarely talk about methodology but always talk about principle and theology? Rarely does it talk about that, but we we sometimes argue or divide over methods or practical matters that the scriptures aren't clear about. Satan tempts us to focus on the negative things going on. Isn't that easy to do? Isn't it easy to do in your own personal spiritual life where you focus on the, the hills, the mountains in your life? They, they seem overwhelming, overbearing. You see all the things that are going wrong in your life and you forget all the blessings of God around you, right? Are you with me? We do that in the church. We, we, we can see God doing great things among us, yet I focus, I, I focus on things that I see as problems, not on the things that God's doing. So again, I want to just kind of go through. Unity is a gift of God. It's accomplished by Jesus and it's applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Unity. Second, unity is a reflection of the Godhead. We were created for unity. Third, it's about mission. Fourth, it's always been attacked by the enemy. And and guess what? He's going to keep on. And fifth, lastly it's maintained by the believer unity is maintained by the believer if you've got your bible turn over to ephesians chapter 4 1 to 3 ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 3 says i therefore a prisoner of the lord is paul speaking i urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called walk in a manner worthy of the calling what does that mean verse 2 describes what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling "...with all a humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love." Verse 3, "...eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace." So this word eagerness, it says eager to maintain a, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This Greek word spoudazo is the, the word to speed, to use speed, to make effort, to be eager for And so be eager to maintain the unity. It is something that is, again, it's a gift of God, accomplished by Jesus, applied by the Spirit, and we as the church are called to maintain it. And that's hard work. And and if you want to go backward in the sermon a couple minutes, the Godhead teaches us how. Humility, interdependence, and mutual submission. So... Here in this passage, how do we? How do we? How are we eager to maintain? Number one is with all humility and gentleness. Humility and gentleness go hand in hand. Uh, I think the King James version says lowliness and meekness. Lowliness and meekness. These give kind of a a good idea of what we're talking about. Humility is a, a low perspective of myself. A low perspective. I see myself accurately. Humility and gentleness go hand in hand. When I don't see myself properly, when I see myself as better off than I actually am, it's easy for me to be harsh with others. But when I see myself how I am, from God's perspective, a beggar in need of mercy who has found bread at God's table. When I see myself that way, it's easy for me to be gentle with others. Because of the grace that I've received, I know they need grace like me. Humility always leads me to grant others what I've freely received from Jesus. So, humility and gentleness. And, and so, he, he doesn't just say with humility and gentleness, but he says with all humility and gentleness. Unity with inside the church don't just need a little humility and a little gentleness. They they need all of it. With patience. That word patience is long-suffering. It means to suffer long for the sake of unity. How easy would it be to try to get vengeance? How easy would it be to try to fight that fight, fight that battle? How easy would it be to try to To make your case, and Paul says, no, humility, gentleness, but with patience. Third, it's bearing one another in love, bearing with one another in love. Now you say, what in the world is bearing with one another in love? I think the King James Version says suffering, suffering with one another in love. Now I think Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, how many of you have ever thought, you know, Leviticus is really helpful to understand the New Testament. Now today, I want you to see Leviticus being really helpful to understand this passage here in Ephesians chapter four. Leviticus chapter 19, I think it'll be up on the screen for us. Verse 17 to 18. What does it mean to bear with one another in love? It says you shall not hate your brother in your heart. So in your brain, I want you to circle the in your heart. Now, oftentimes we, we can put on a happy face. We can act like everything is okay, but it's not the face or the body language that we need to work on. It's the heart where we're bearing a grudge. Amen, somebody? It's inside that we're holding something against someone. We're not hating them outwardly. We're not walking around cursing them. We're not yelling at that person. We, we're, we're not punching them or doing anything, any kind of physical violence, but on the inside, we sure would like to. And Leviticus says you don't need to hate a brother in your heart. I'm, don't you remember what Jesus said? Have you has anybody ever committed murder? Well, of course not. But I say to you if you hate a brother in your heart, you already have. This is what Jesus was talking about. It goes on to say you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. In other words, don't let it linger. Don't let it go on. Don't just think that you can bury some kind of wrong and think that it's going to deal with itself. He it says, go to your neighbor and reason frankly with them. Now, there are ways to do that that are helpful and ways to do that that are not. Walk up to somebody and go, and you, let me start with you, right? No, I, I, here's how I feel, brother. I, I believe that... that that there's something going on here. I I believe, I feel like you have sinned against me. I believe that this is not pleasing to the Lord. Reason frankly with them. Look at the, the next phrase. Lest you incur sin because of Him. What the author here of Leviticus, what God is saying to you and me is that if we hold it in our heart, and we don't go and reason frankly with our brother that we end up sinning because of the sin against us. And what God's saying here in Leviticus is it's not about what somebody's done to you, it's about what you do with the sin in your heart. Ryan, I don't like that. Me neither. The Bible's revealing that the way that I deal with conflict in my life can either lead me further into sin or help me to walk in a way that pleases the Lord continues you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself I am the Lord love your neighbor as yourself overused phrase but I want you to think about it in light of this idea of forgiveness or in light of this idea of unity and bearing with one another in love or this this picture is that don't we when we sin against the Lord and we know that it's sin against the Lord don't we run to the cross don't we say oh God I'm so sorry this is what I've done Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that you loved me enough to die for me. Thank you that you have forgiven me. And I stand on that promise, Lord. Thank you. It's such great news. I'm redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But when it comes to dealing with somebody else's sin against me, am I as quick to offer them what God has freely offered me? Are you with me? So we bear grudges. No, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that sin against you might be hours old. That sin against you might be decades old. But unforgiveness is a bitter pill, isn't it? Have you borne that burden in your heart? Oh gosh, the burden of unforgiveness is, is too great for you and me. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping that the offender has, will die. You drink it, hoping that they die. It never works that way, it only kills you. So we come into this moment where, where we read the high priestly prayer, and Jesus says, of all the things that I want to pray for, it's I want to pray for unity. Of all the things that I could leave my people with when I ascend to the Father, I I want to leave them unity. Why? Because it's a reflection of the Godhead. It's about the mission. I want to end with this quote. I think it will be on the screen. It's broken into a few slides. It says, A unified church is one of the strongest evidences of the truth of the gospel. This is especially true in a world as fragmented and divisive as ours. Where countercultural unity among diverse people stands out. By the way, that's what the church ought to be countercultural unity among diverse people. That should stand out. When the rest of the world can't seem to agree on anything or bear to be around people who are different, a church where natural enemies become siblings in Christ is a powerful alternative. Where division might normally reign, unity should instead lead to an uncommon love where believers listen to and bear with one another, find this last statement, unity is a critical manifestation of a Spirit-empowered church. So I believe that God has given this word to us because we need this word. And I believe that we can leave here in a way that would be honoring to Him, and we can leave here in a way that would further grieve Him. And my desire for you and for me today is that we would get right. Number one, that we would get right with other people, and most importantly, that we would get right with God. I can't be right with God if I'm not right with other people. And that's hard works. Reason, frankly, with your neighbor. My encouragement to you today is if there is something going on in your heart, Begin the process of restoring unity. Begin the process of healing. Begin the process of forgiveness. Is forgiveness a once and done thing? Of course not. Forgiveness is a lifelong event, but it takes one moment that you start it. And some of us today, we need to walk on this journey toward all of those things, eagerness, Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiveness. We need to walk a journey, start a journey inside of our church and in our hearts. We need to walk a journey toward unity. Why? Because there's a mission at stake. Because we are the hope of the world, and our uncommon unity draws people to Jesus. So you might be sitting there today and saying, you know, That so-and-so has hurt me. I want to encourage you to go before the Lord. I want to encourage you to go grab that person if they're in this room. And I want to encourage you to make right what's not. If there are things that you're bearing in your heart, and I can help you, On that journey, I'd love for you to call me. I'd love for us to go to coffee. I'd love for us to sit down together so that we might be together. But today, before you sing another word, your heart might need to be made right with God. Would you stand with me? It's a moment of worship, but it's also a moment of obedience. So, if the Lord has put something in your mind, in your heart, that you're bearing against somebody, I want to encourage you today. Go to him. Brother, sister, I'm sorry. I've been bearing this against you and I don't want to bear it any longer. If it's something that only you and the Lord can deal with today, go to the Lord. Use this altar, these steps as a place to worship Him and to meet with Him that we might be eager to maintain the unity of the body. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is true and it's difficult. Your Word is good for us. You care desperately, deeply about your church, not just the little C, Seneca Baptist Church, but your church, as in the the big capital C, universal church all around the world. Father, would you help us to lay down our arms, to focus on the mission, to see that there are far more things that we have in common with our brothers and sisters than things that we have that are not common. Father, would you allow us to offer forgiveness to those who need to be forgiven? Father, you're going to have to work in our hearts for that. But in this moment, in the quiet of this music, Father, would you work? Would you speak? Would you lead? And would you cause your people to be obedient? The altar is going to be open now. You move. If there's somebody that you need to grab and come to the altar, you grab them and come with them, but don't let this moment pass. You'll be silent. You move, and then after a time of silence, we'll sing. You move as the Lord leads you.